It's a really, it's a great privilege to be here with you. I appreciate so much the opportunity. Thank you for, for letting me come back. I was here a couple of weeks ago, so it must have either you were really desperate or it went all right, I guess. So we pre- I really appreciate, uh, as always, the opportunity to be here. You always make me feel so at home, and, and I'm grateful for that. I'd like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, you know, starting Galatians chapter 3. We'll be reading um, verses 24 through 29. So Galatians 3, 24 through 29. Um, I'd like to invite you, if you're able, to please stand as we read from the Word of God. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in the 24th verse. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are so grateful for your word. We thank you that you've chosen to, um, to speak to us through it today, that you have chosen to reveal yourself and your will through your word. We pray now that our hearts and our minds might be clear of anything that would distract us, anything that would keep us from hearing your word clearly. We pray, Father, for, for me that um, you would help my words to be true and right, that you would correct me wherever that is necessary fact that um, I wouldn't be heard at all, but that your word would be heard clearly and rightly, and that Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would enlighten us and teach us and guide us today, that we might understand who we are in Jesus Christ, and we might uh, live in that and just glory in it. In his name we pray, amen. Once upon a time, there was a farmer, and the farmer decided one day he was going to go for a walk. So he went for a walk up in the mountains. And he began to climb higher and higher up into the mountains. And he got pretty high up. And he comes across a large nest. And he goes and looks in the nest. And there's a large egg there. And so he says, hmm, I wonder what this is. So he says, I know. I'll take it with me. So he takes the egg and he takes it back down to his farm. And he takes it and he puts it in his hen house. And his hens sit on it. And then, you know... A couple weeks later, the egg hatches, and this very large, very awkward-looking chicken pops out. And the large, awkward-looking chicken begins to, to look and learn from the other chickens. And he begins to, to learn how chickens walk around, and how chickens peck at the ground, and how chickens eat worms, and how chickens run from things when they're scared. And he learns to do all the things that chickens learn to do. And then one day he's out in the yard pecking with the other chickens and this huge majestic shadow from the sky above flies over their head and begins to circle around. And the awkward looking chicken looks up and goes, oh my goodness, as he looks up and sees this great majestic bird flying in the air. And he looks at one of the other chickens and he says, what is that? The other chicken looks up and goes, oh, that's an eagle. And the, the eagle is the king of the birds. They can soar to, to great altitudes. They can see for miles. They can fly forever. There's nothing like an eagle. They're nothing like us chickens. 
So the big awkward chicken thinks about that for a moment and he says, I wish I were an eagle. And he goes back to pecking with the rest of the chickens. Now, of course, the big awkward chicken was not a chicken at all. The big awkward chicken was an eagle with an identity crisis. You see, he never did what he was meant to do because he never knew who he was. He thought he was a chicken, so he never acted like the eagle that he was. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church at Galatia because they are suffering from a similar identity crisis. They never really understood who they were in Christ, and so they never did what they were supposed to do. Now, a little context is helpful here. Paul writes this letter to the church at Galatia because what had happened is once the church was planted, a a group had come into the church known as the Judaizers. And what this group had come in and what they were teaching the people is, in order to be saved, you must keep all the Jewish laws, circumcision, all all the ceremonial laws, and you must believe and have faith in Jesus. So it was basically salvation was faith in Jesus plus the law. That's what they were teaching. And the Galatians became very confused by this and they were buying into it. And the Apostle Paul, when he, he got word of this, he was upset to be just... If, if you ever read the book of Galatians, I encourage you to read it like you're angry. Because this is the attitude that the Apostle Paul has through this whole book. He is very, very, very angry. In fact, this was the very, most scholars believe this is the earliest epistle that Paul actually wrote in his own hand because he was so outraged at what had happened and believed it needed such an immediate response. And so he was writing to a people that they had an identity crisis. They never were going to be who they were called to be in Jesus Christ. Because they had never stopped being under the bondage of the law. They were still acting as if they were slaves. And yet they were children of the king. And so that's what Paul is is going to address here. And he spends the first half of this letter saying one thing over and over and over again. He says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He says Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus anything equals damnation. And that is his message through this whole book. And he gets to this point here where he is is just pounded on that for the first half of the book. And now he's going to begin to say, okay, now that you understand that, here's how it affects your life. Here's how it should make you live. And so what I want us to understand today is what we do does not determine who we are. Who we are determines what we do. That's what the Apostle Paul is going to say here. So I want us to look at three things here. We're going to see that we are children through Jesus, we are clothed by Jesus, and we are equal in Jesus. So we're going to see three things here. First thing I want us to see, verses 25 and 26, that we are children through Jesus. It says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now, the first thing we have to address here is a popular, um, a popular belief that is very, very wrong. 
Uh, a lot of people talk about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. No such thing is taught in Scripture. We are not all God's children. In fact, Scripture is quite clear that by nature, we are children of wrath. We are children of the devil. We are enemies of God by our very nature. And so, prior to God coming to us in Jesus Christ, we were in this spiritual prison. But Paul says we are no longer that way. When we exercise faith in Christ and we believe in Jesus and trust in what he did, something takes place. A legal transaction takes place. We move from being enemies of God to being children of God. We are adopted into the family of God. It's an idea of the Jewish, an idea of Jewish adoption is in view here where uh, someone who is not a member of the family, a child who is not a member of the family, is taken in. And all the benefits, all the blessing, all the name of that family is conferred upon that child. And that's what Paul is saying is happening to us in Jesus Christ. He says that, you know, now God is the father of, in the sense that he's a creator of everybody, right? Everybody understands that, I think. But... Only through Jesus do we become his children. And that's what Paul's saying here. And he's, and that's said multiple times in the scripture. Jesus himself said that. Because here's what we think. And I, this is because of our fallenness, because of our pride. But we think, you know what? I, I know I'm not God's child. I know I'm, my relationship with God is not right. So what I have to do is I have to work. And I have to work really hard and I have to do all the good things God tells me to do and not do all the bad things he tells me not to do. And then I can be God's child. I can earn and work my way into his family. That is the view of every religion in the world except one. That is not the view of Christianity. That is not the gospel according to Jesus. Jesus says no children are passive in the adoption process. I don't know if you are adopted, have adopted, or know anybody who's been adopted. But when you have a child who's going to be adopted, does, does the child get up one day and say, Okay, I'm going to go find my new family. And that, and that child walks out and that child goes and says, You know, the Lowry's, that's a good family. I want to be a part of that family. So they go and they say, Look, I'm, I'm going to be a part of your family, okay? What do I need to do to be in here? And you, you lay out all these ground rules. Well, you got to do this and this. And you can't do this, this, and this. And, of course, you have to pay all the legal fees. And, um, and you have to go through everything. Is that how that works for adoption? No. The, an adoptee is completely passive in the process, right? It is the parents. It is, is the, the people who are doing the adopting that they pay all the, penalty, all the fees. They, they bear all the burden. They make the selection. And Paul's saying that's what happens through us in Jesus Christ, that we are sons of God through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. We, because He is the Son, and because we are identified with Him and in Him, we are adopted as children of the Father. And that's what he's saying here. And so what that means is an amazing thing. It means that everything that is Jesus that belongs to him now belongs to us as well. Look, it, it's not that we are somehow distant acquaintances of God. 
Okay? It's not like we were enemies of God and now we've been okay and so we're cool. You know, God's not mad at us anymore. No, it's that we have, have been made right with God. Yes, but that we are not just acquaintances. We are His children. Now, I'm going to guess a lot of you have children. Maybe all of you have children. But you just think about how much you love your child you know, as compared to some random stranger's kid, right? You know, Terry was talking about how she was a school teacher. I'm sure she loved a lot of her kids in school, a lot of the kids she taught. But I guarantee she didn't love any of them as much as she loves her own children because that's just who we are and that's the way we are. And that's the way God is. We are put in this really special relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And because we are related to God in that way, we have, a, a, we have at our disposal all the resources that Jesus has at His disposal. We have become His, and we have become like Jesus in so many ways. And so this amazing thing happens that we who are very, very far away from God are suddenly His children We've been made a part of His family. God is not distant. He is not the God of of the deist who sort of put everything in motion and stands back and doesn't have anything to do with it. He is not aloof to us. He cares deeply for us and He is intimately involved in our life. Our relationship is not casual, nor is it superficial. And this relationship is not temporal. It is not a relationship we have to worry about going away. Look, you might at some point have had problems or or may have problems with your children to where relationally things are are not good, but they will never, ever cease to be your child, right? And as long as Jesus is the Father's Son, we are the Father's children. And how long will Jesus be the Father's Son? Forever and ever and ever. We are in that same position when we put our faith in Christ. So we are adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ, number one. Number two, we are clothed by Jesus, verse 27. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He uses an interesting analogy here, the analogy of clothes and we, clothing. We see that throughout Scripture. But he says, as many as you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So I want to talk about our, our new clothes and really kind of three, three things about them. Number one, that our new clothes are clean. You know, when we came to God before, before we came to Christ, we were dirty. We were filthy. We were nasty. We were as unclean as unclean could be. We had been rolling around in the cesspool outside. That's what we look like. But now these clothes that we're cleathed with, you know, Isaiah talks about that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. So when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, what happens is we take off these clothes, these filthy clothes of our own righteousness, and we get rid of those. And we're given a new set of clothes, and that new set of clothes is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the picture here, the transfer of His righteousness to us. So we put on His righteousness. We are clothed in that. And, and because He is perfect, perfectly holy, perfectly clean, we become perfectly holy and perfectly clean. Not because we're good people, not because we've worked hard, not because we've cleaned our own clothes. 
but because Jesus was perfect. And His righteousness is imputed, is credited to our account. We had nothing to do with having these clean clothes. They were a free gift. And that's the only way to get them, is through a free gift. We don't get them through working for them and earning them. And so we clothe ourselves. And it's, it's, it's this really beautiful picture of all that happens to us, how we become a new creation. Um, have you ever, I don't know if any of you watch, how much TV you watch, but they always have these, these makeover shows on TV. Like, my wife really used to like to watch this show called What Not to Wear. I don't know if you've ever seen that show before. And they'll, they'll pick somebody that's, that's fashion impaired, let's say. And um, they take the person and they, they have these professional clothes, pe- I don't know what you call them, clothes people and hairdressers and all that. And they completely redo them and, and give them a new wardrobe and all. And, and I mean, it's amazing because at the end of that show, they're unidentifiable. They didn't even look like the same person at the beginning of the show. They did at the beginning of the show. You know, kind of frumpy and dirty and sloppy. And here they look like something out of a magazine. And that's, it's in a way a picture of what happens to us with Jesus. That we're sort of all frumpy and dirty and nasty. And then we have this incredible makeover through Jesus that he comes and he makes us new. Everything about us new. And then we wind up over here and we're looking really good. We were completely passive in the process. We had nothing to do with it. We just sat back and we were clothed in Jesus and his righteousness and his wisdom and his power and his life. The Spirit of Christ comes and dwells in us. Naturally, we look like Adam. Spiritually, when we are adopted in the family of God, we look like Jesus. And that's the way we want to look. That's the way we're called to look. And so our new clothes are clean, but our new clothes are also, again, it's it's symbolic of something, you know, there's something different about us. Now, the the phrase baptism here, baptized into Christ Jesus, it really could have a a dual meaning. Now, we think of it when we hear that word, we think of baptismal, being immersed in the waters of baptism. And it's quite possible that's a part of it. But I want us to be very careful here that we don't believe that baptism is somehow necessary to save us. That if we go, if we, if we somehow are not baptized, that does not mean we're not Christians. We are all called to be baptized. It's very clear that that is something very important that we need to do. And I don't want to diminish the importance of it and the gravity of it because it is a significant part. But what baptism is, is it is not something that saves us, but rather it is a sign that we are saved. Do you understand the difference? It doesn't save us, but it is a sign that we are saved. It is a public proclamation of our personal, private trust and faith in Jesus Christ. It is us going down into the water, coming up out of the water, and saying, I publicly proclaim that I belong to Jesus. That is ultimately what baptism is and does. And it is a baptism into Christ, into the community of believers. And but I, and so there's that aspect of it that he could be talking about here, but he could just be talking about also the idea of being baptized into the Spirit of God or baptized by the Spirit of God. And that's something that happens to us when we first come to faith in Christ. And it happens for every believer that the Holy Spirit comes. He, we are spiritually immersed by Him. And He comes to dwell in us permanently forever. And so there's that idea. And the idea here may have been the Roman soldiers, and, and Paul may have been kind of speaking to that at this point, 
um, that they had to give an oath, an oath of allegiance to Caesar, an oath of allegiance to Rome. And so Paul here seems to be drawing a correlation between the oath of the Roman soldier and the oath of a Christian. But our oath is not to Caesar, it is not to Rome, but it is to our king, to King Jesus and to his kingdom. And that's the idea of baptism here. We are justified by faith in Christ. You know, um, have anybody ever seen Braveheart? Ever seen that movie? And, and if you've ever seen Scottish, you know, they, they wear the kilts. If you ever notice the kilts, they all look different. They'll have different patterns, different colors, and, and that sort of thing. And the reason for that is each one of those patterns on their kilts identifies what clan they belong to, basically what family or what community they belong to. We don't wear a kilt like that, but we wear Jesus to identify us as part of the family of Christ. And, and the way he manifests that, yeah, he manifests that we wear Jesus when we go into the waters of baptism. That identifies us in, in, in a public proclamation that we belong to him. But we also clo- are clothed with Jesus and are identified with Jesus because of the way we live our lives. Because we are different than the people around us. People look at us and they say, hey, Julie Brock, she's different. You know, she's different. There's something about her that's not like all these other people. And what's different about her is that she's living Jesus out in her life. And that's what we want to be, that we're clothed in Jesus. So our new, our new clothes are, are cleaner, they're symbolic, but our new clothes are also bigger. Paul's using a clothes, he uses a clothing metaphor a lot. And the idea here is something that happened for a Jewish boy. Now, in Jewish culture, we have something unique in Western culture, and that's the concept of a teenager. In ancient cultures like Judaism, there was no such thing. You were either a child or you were an adult. Okay, There's no in-between, child or adult. Typically, when a Jewish boy turned 13, he went through something called a bar mitzvah. And it was a ceremony that signified his, his movement from a child to a man. From a boy to a man. And at that time, um, that was true in Jewish culture. It was also true in Roman culture. Now, in Roman culture, it was a little different. Um, The father got to decide when his son became a man. So it wasn't at this set time like in Judaism. So in Roman culture, the father decided when his son became a man. And so when the father said, yep, you're ready. Tom, you're ready to be a man. Your father would, would say, okay, now it's time. We're going to have this big ceremony, this big public proclamation. And, and what would happen is he would be given this thing called a um, toga virilis. And it was this, this idea that he got a new set of clothes. He got his big boy pants, basically. There was this public outward symbol that Tom is no longer a boy. Tom is a man. Now, he may be a young man, and that would be obvious by his appearance, but he is still a man. He has transitioned from, from boyhood to manhood. And so it's almost like Paul is saying here, look, we have got to move. You, and he's talking to the Galatians, you've got to move from being children. 
You are no longer children under the law. You're no longer children who... Because Paul earlier in this letter, actually right before this, the passage right before we read this morning, he says, look, the law had one purpose. The law was not to tell us how to be made right with God. That was not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to lead us to Jesus Christ. He says, because all the law, the law can't redeem us. All the law can really do is the law can tell us what God demands and show us how fall, how short we fall. Right? Because the law says, okay, you want to be made right with God, do this, 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 and this. And then you look at the law and what do you realize? I can't do this, 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 and this. It's impossible. So it puts us to the end of ourselves, the end of our own abilities. It causes us despair, and it causes us to go to the one and only place we can find redemption. It causes us to go to the one and only place we can be made right with God, and that is in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying here, look, you've been made right with God. Act like it. Take joy in that. Don't be afraid all the time. Okay, you know, we, we go around thinking, gosh, you know, I'm, I messed up. God's gonna, if I mess up, God's gonna, gonna smack me. You know, He's gonna punish me. He's gonna beat me down. He's gonna, look, you are a child of God. I am a child of God because of Jesus. And as long as Jesus remains God's son, we remain God's children. He loves us as if, as He loves Christ. We are identified with Him. We are in a position with Him and identified with Him with the Father. But let's not forget, we need to be identified with Jesus in this world as well. There needs to be something distinct about us. Something different. We are wearing a different set of clothes from everybody else. And we need to remember that and we need to act like it. And ultimately, we need to act like adults. We need to be men and women in our conduct, not boys and girls. Okay? And this is a big problem. You know, there's a big problem in America today, and it's even got a name. And it's, and it's called adultolescence. And, and what it is, and this is really a significant issue in our culture today, and it, it deals particularly with young men in our culture, and it's refusal of young men to grow up, that they stay children even while they're adults. And you see this. You see these, these guys who are, um, who are 35, still living at home, living in the basement, spending four hours a day playing video games, you know, mooching off their mom and dad, and, and not taking responsibility, not going out, not getting married, not being families, not, not uh, growing professionally. And this is a big problem, and this is a problem in the church as well, that lots and lots of us don't grow up. We stay spoiled, petty little children. We believe that everybody's here to serve us. Look, I got a five year old little boy, and and I love him more than anything. But there are a few things in this world as self centered and as self consumed as a small child. Okay? They are just eat up with them. And the whole world, it is their world and everybody else is living in it, right? The problem is a lot of us never ever grow out of that. And the bigger problem is a lot of us in the church never ever grow out of that. We've got to act like adults. 
So we are all clothed in Jesus. And then finally, we're all equal in Jesus. Verse 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me hit this real quickly. But number one, I want you to understand that race cannot separate us from Jesus Christ. There are no national distinctions. Christianity is not just for Americans. It is not just for Jewish people. It is not just for white people or black people or Asian people. No, Jesus Christ in the gospel is for all people. That's the first proclamation. Race will not separate us from Jesus Christ. And we must never look down on somebody because they are simply a different nationality for us. From us. And let me just say something. This is something I feel strongly about, I feel passionately about. Um, this week, uh, Wednesday, marked a significant anniversary in our country. It was the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington and Martin Luther King's um, I Have a Dream speech. You know, and, and one of the lines in there, and it was apparently it was a throwaway line that wasn't in his original speech, but the most famous line is there, I look forward to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but rather by the content of their character. As true as that is for America, as true as, as racism has no place in America, I'm here to tell you today, it has absolutely no place and it is completely inexcusable in the church of Jesus Christ to be racist. Period. Paul says here very clearly that race cannot separate us from Jesus Christ. Just because somebody doesn't look like we do, just because somebody doesn't come from the same cultural background we do, that doesn't mean the gospel's not for them. That doesn't mean they're not as equally as saved and they're not as much part of Jesus as we are. We need to understand that. Number two, that he says here that there is no, there's neither slave nor free. Economic condition cannot separate us from Jesus. Rich people, poor people, doesn't matter. You know, this is interesting because this is the one area, spiritually speaking, where rich people have no advantage over poor people. In fact, rich people may even be at a disadvantage here, depending on how you read and understand things um, in Scripture. We are all equal before God spiritually. We are all paupers. We are all destitute. We are all broke. We are all dead. But we have this this tendency sometimes to look at somebody that is of a different economic class than us and to think, well, we're better than them or they're better than us. We tend to think that. But in the gospel, the gospel is not like that. The gospel is completely indiscriminate when it comes to how much money you make. Jesus doesn't care. What matters is do you put your faith and trust in him? Because the gospel is just as much for Bill Gates as it is for the poorest person in Haiti. Okay? And so we need to remember that, that economic class cannot separate us from Jesus. And then finally, he says, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The third and final thing is that gender... I'm confused now because of the way I'm going to say gender, but they um, cannot separate us from Jesus. We need to understand this was a radical idea for the time. There's a, there's a lot of ladies in here this morning. There's more ladies than men. But I want you to understand, if you were around at the time Paul wrote this, you would have been second-class citizens. You would have been property. You would have not been people. And so Paul and the gospel make a radical statement here. They say that women 
are just as valid, are just as equal. They're not second-class citizens. They're not property. They are valuable to God. And Jesus died for them, and the gospel is for women just the same way it is for men. Christianity has done more to elevate the status of women than any other religion, than any other worldview, than any other ideology in the history of the world. Period. So there are no distinctions because we are all saved the same way. We all serve the same Lord and we all serve together. So economists have found something interesting. They have found that family firms that pass down from one generation to the next, like, um, I'll take one like Ford Motor Company, let's say, it's just kind of a family business. You know, you had Henry Ford did really well, and then you had his his son came in and take over, and it didn't do as well. And they find out that typically in family-run businesses, the next generation tends not to do as well as that initial generation. In fact, a lot of the companies really tank after that. And um, and so they've looked at that, and they've examined that, and they found that it should be true all over the world with the exception of one country. And that country is Japan. But it's a little bit... It's a little bit tricky. Japan kind of cheats. America and Japan, they have the highest, they are the two countries with the highest adoption rates in the world. Okay? So it's America and then Japan. But there's one significant difference. The majority of adoptions in the United States are of children, of small children. But adoptions in Japan of children only account for 2% of all adoptions. 98% of all adoptions in in Japan are males between 25 and 30 years old. Okay? Yeah, that's kind of a crazy thing to us. But basically, here's what happens. Is... um, you run, you have a business, a very successful business, and you're the, you know, the, the, the guy who's in charge. And you got your son who's supposed to take over, and you start looking at him and go, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I got to find somebody that's going to run my company as good or better than I did. So what you do is you begin to go out and you begin to look at all the, all the business schools, all the MBA students, all the executives from other companies, young executives, and you look and you find a guy. And you say, you know what, this guy, this guy can do it. He's sharp. And you offer to adopt him into your family. Now, this is a legal adoption. This is not, this is not symbolic. There is actual court paperwork filed and, you know, um, okay, I, I got I only know some of your kids' names, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna see Kara, right? I'm gonna look and I'm gonna say, Kara is, this girl is top notch. I mean, and, and I need her to run my business. So I come to Kara and say, Kara, we wanna adopt you into the family. And she says, alright. I said, now you gotta understand what that means. It means you're changing your name. You know, no, no more Brock. You're not going to the Brock family Christmas anymore. You are coming to the Nash family, and you're going to be part of the Nash family Christmas, and you're going to, you're going to be part of our family, just like our, our own child. And that's what happens, and they actually do the paperwork for that, and it's a legal adoption, just like if it were a small child. And so those companies that are taken over by those kinds of heirs do very, very well but because they cheat, they select, right? Now, I thought about that, and I thought it was, I mean, I just thought that whole thing was interesting, but 
I thought, well, how would I feel if my son decided to be adopted into another family? I mean, think about that. Kara says, Brocks, I don't need the Brocks. I'm going to go be a Nash. That's way cooler, right? And, um, you know, how would that make you feel? I mean, I, I don't know. I think I wouldn't feel good about it at all. But what's very interesting is the families whose sons do this, they're not sad. They're not upset. They are overjoyed. They are so thrilled that their son has been honored to be part of the Toyota clan or the Suzuki clan or something like that. They are just thrilled by that. We need to understand that we should be thrilled because we have been adopted not into some great business family, but we have been adopted as children into the family of God. We are heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Him. We are sons and daughters of God forever and ever, made right with Him. So we need to remember that, and we need to grasp that. And so I think there are three really important things that come out of this. Number one, we need to act like royalty, because that's what we are. We are sons and daughters of the King. We need to act like that. And royalty, they don't act like regular folk. There's something higher and mightier and better about them and the way that they act. Number two, we need to act like adults. There's no excuse for acting like children, especially in the body of Christ. And then number three, we need to act together. And we are all equal in Christ. And again, there are things that we look at outwardly that might divide us. But that is the beauty of the gospel. That you can take the poorest guy. You can take the richest guy. You can take... I mean, okay, this is how... I hope everybody watches enough TV to get this illustration. The gospel is so great that it could, that it could bring into unity Rachel Maddow and Bill O'Reilly. Okay? I mean, if you know who those two people are, I mean, these are as extreme on the opposite end of the political spectrums as you can get. Yet in Jesus, they could be a brother and sister in Christ. Okay? It could take somebody as terrible and as awful as um, the guy over there in Syria right now who's, who's using chemical bombs on his own people. And it can bring him into fellowship with all of us. That is how great the gospel is, and that is what it is capable of doing. It is capable of uniting people who are very, very different, but bringing them together, clothing them with the same Lord, clothing them, adopting them with the same Lord, and ultimately, we are all the family of God forever, and that will change what we do and how we do it. Because what we do does not define who we are, but who we are defines what we do. And who we are is children of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just the opportunity to share. And we pray that you'd help us to meditate on the truth of your word, to understand it, and just to, uh, to live in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.